Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast series here on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Raj Balkaran about his pandemic perspective as an academic. Welcome to the show, Raj. It's a pleasure being on the show, and it is a particular pleasure being a guest for a change. Uh, I host the New Books and Indian Religions channel. And that leads to my next question, which is, will you please tell us about yourself? Well, I host the New Books and Indian Religions channel for the New Books Network. That's sort of a hobby turned uh, lifestyle, I suppose, at this point. Um but uh, in terms of scholarship, I'm a scholar of um, ancient Sanskrit narrative texts. So technically, they're called the Puranas, um, epic texts, mythological texts, that sort of thing. And I make sense of them and make sense of ways in which we can read them, taking our cue from their structures. Um, is that what you wanted to know? Uh, yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and where you live as well? Yeah, I live in Toronto. Uh, I actually grew up in Toronto. I did my BA and master's in Toronto. I went away to Calgary to do my PhD there. And then I ended up back in Toronto. It's a wonderfully uh, diverse uh, cosmopolitan city. So it's it's uh, good fun being here. I mean, at this point, one would be in one's home office, irrespective of what city one's in. <laughs> but uh, in the days when we could venture out, uh, Toronto is certainly a great place to be. Um, I uh, essentially, since defending my, my, my dissertation in 2015, I've been in this very um, unprecedented space of being a well-connected, uh, high-producing um, scholar, uh, but without a, a sort of a traditional university job. I, I teach online and, and uh, do one-on-one coaching, and that's primarily what funds my pro bono scholarly production. Um, does that give some context? Yeah, that's wonderful context. Um, one of the things I always like to ask is, what led you to this particular field of study? How how young were you when you knew that you were interested in studying religions, and what specifically led you to Sanskrit? Yeah, well, it ebbs and flows. Uh, it ebbed and flowed in my case. Um, it took me some time to realize only about four or five years ago that one of my great loves uh, growing up, uh, I enjoyed a great many things. I was decent at a great many things, but probably one of my favorite units of all time uh, was a unit we did on mythology, Greek mythology, in elementary school, and it just set me on fire. I sort of forgot about that fire because beyond elementary school, um, my fire was lit by music. So I was a big um, music nerd, band nerd, played uh, a couple instruments, uh, was in every possible musical group I could being throughout my high school years. Um, but that, that love was part of me, um, love of story, love of narrative. Um, that was just part of my way of being. Initially, I wanted to major in English literature. I went to the University of Toronto to study uh, literature, minors in history and philosophy. And the dream job was to be a high school teacher and perhaps use some of my organizational skills to help in administration, whether that was school principal or beyond type thing. Um, And although I quite enjoy teaching and I still teach, um, 
there were so many pressures and my heart wasn't really in the degree that I ended up pursuing. And I ended up leaving school, working full time, uh, doing office clerical work for a while. And due to some mentorship on behalf of a great manager um, who said, look, we have a job that would pay double than you're making now, uh, but we can't even interview for the position. You can do it in your sleep, but it's a requirement of the job that one has post-secondary education. And she was like, look, this will haunt you for the rest of your life. You should finish a degree of any kind, Greek pottery, whatever works. And um, I took advice to heart and I was looking through the, the, the offerings. I was, of course, nervous because I'm like, oh, I'm quote unquote old and I've <laughs> been out of school for a few years. And so um, I discovered this course the day it started in my dentist chair over my lunch hour at my office job. And the course was called Introduction to the Hindu Religious Tradition. I thought, oh, I'm really interested in, 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 in Hindu uh, sort of thought and practice. I'm at a stage in my life where I'm venturing out and spiritually hungry, looking for different paradigms. And I come from a Hindu home, didn't have much to do with it growing up because of, you know, the pressures of assimilation and the pressure, the cultural clashes of, of you know, being, um, uh, how to say, it, the immigrant experience you know, isn't always a particularly uh, <laughs> smooth one. And so I was sort of this rational kid who was fairly bright, who didn't really want much to do with organized religion and certainly not uh, my own because because <laughs> this is what people do when they immigrate. It's one, it's one impulse or the other, I find. And so I was spiritually seeking. I thought, okay, I'd love to learn some some information about about the history of Hinduism and all that. I didn't realize it, it was a thing one could study at university. I understood that it was obviously an academic uh, enterprise. Uh, I enrolled, and after that one course, I got the highest mark I'd ever gotten in a university course. And I ended up taking severance the next year, returning, finishing undergrad, finishing a master's, a PhD, etc., what I found was that for one interested in literature, history, philosophy as I was, um, one can't really get those courses in other traditions other than Western traditions unless one does it through some kind of sort of South Asian studies or do it in some area studies or do it through religious studies. Uh, the academic study of religion really is so cross-disciplinary because it's not a spiritual theological enterprise. So it really is the history of religion, the philosophy of religion, the sociology of religion, the psychology of religion, etc., etc., etc. So I soon discovered that I could nourish this interest in literature and story and history and philosophy and eventually spirituality and studying spirituality and practicing and bringing them all together as I currently do at my online school. I could study that uh, pertaining to what we call uh, South Asia, or civilizational India, through the aperture, the doorway, the discipline of religious studies. And I can't remember if I've answered your question or not, <laughs> but I hope that gives you something to work with. You have, um, but I have to circle back to one one piece of this story. You said you were on a lunch break at your dentist and you had this epiphany in the dentist chair. What kind of dentist is this? And can we all go there? Oh, dear. So um, I was an industrious lad. Uh, probably most would say, say I'm st- I still am. Um, uh, but I had a nine to five job, I guess, 830 to 430 to be technical. And, um, and I also... 
because I'm a congenital extrovert, uh, dissertating on a textual project broke my extroversion. It bent it <laughs> for good. I'm fairly introverted much of the time these days. One needs to be to be a textual scholar. But in those days, the technical head down monkey work job wasn't enough. So I was doing uh, parties, catering, cater waitering in the evenings, planning parties and all that stuff. So I had a day job a part-time catering gig that was in that on that day I happened to have both it was a Thursday it was the first Thursday of of September in 2004 <laughs> and me being me my dentist was close to uh, where I worked so I needed a cleaning so I was getting my <laughs> annual dental cleaning over my lunch hour and that was the first day of university that year. And I still hadn't decided being hopelessly indecisive about these things and wanting to make sure I get it right this time. I had this, this course book in my hand where I was crossing out. I'm like, just find one course that you enjoy. Forget the career, forget everything else. Find a course you enjoy. It'll, it'll, it will inspire you to continue if that's what you want to do. So I'm, I thought, okay, I like so many things. Let's do a cro- process of elimination, cross out chemistry, cross out biology, cross out physics, cross out, etc., etc., etc. And then I thought, okay, well, it's Thursday today. So I have the whole weekend and next week will be my first week of classes, full week of classes. I'll figure it out this weekend. So I'm sitting there waiting for the dentist to come in, looking at this course calendar, and it hit me. One of those moments when the star is aligned, you know, the kaleidoscope clicks into place. Boom. Introduction to the Hindu religious tradition. It called my attention. I thought, okay, I'm really curious about Hinduism. I'm really spiritually seeking, and I've been looking at mantra and meditation books. And this would be a great way to gain credit and pursue my interests. Oh my God, it starts today. I can't do it. I have a cater waitering shift at to work, and I was hopelessly responsible in those days, and I would never stiff anyone. And the, the company's always looking for people last minute. That's the nature of the industry, because numbers go up last minute, parties are booked last minute. They're always looking for people. <laughs> and so I'm saying to myself, I can't go to this course. I, I have this shift. But the intuition, that, 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 the, the force of destiny was gnawing at me. You know, and so I, I, I ended up sheepishly, timidly calling my, my catering company and the owner answered. And his name is Michael. <laughs> the company was called The Butler Did It. <laughs> um, uh, and they're always looking for people. And the first thing he says is, oh, hey, hey, Raj, would you like the night off? And I was like, what on earth? If they existed at the time, I would have thought I was on some reality TV show. What, yeah, yes, I w- Yes, I actually would. Oh, we've got extra book tonight. Great. Saves us money, saves you time. Great. Enjoy the night. Click. And now I'm like, I have to go. I go online and I can't register because the course is full. I'm like, no, I'm discovering this. It's calling. Michael's overbooked for some strange reason. I'm going to go to that class in one way or another. I'll get it. And it's six to nine in the evening, so I can, you know, stay at work and go Thursday evenings. So I went and uh, changed the course of my destiny because it, it, it not only planted the seed of this trajectory of being an expert in, for lack of a better word, Hindu studies or Sanskrit narrative text, the woman who was supposed to teach the course was on mat leave. And the sessional who taught the course that year had a good friend who owned a yoga studio. At that yoga studio was this, this um, Indian teacher, this guru, and he ended up being my teacher. I ended up visiting for some of the, the Dharma talks or satsangs, and um, 
massively alter the course of my life. Um, hundreds of hours of lineal training and spiritual exposition to, to really complement what I was getting at the academy. And if it wasn't for that fateful day in my dentist chair, I certainly wouldn't be on this podcast with you. So when you wanted to dive deep into Sanskrit, though, it wasn't something you were going to do online and it wasn't something that you did in Canada. You had to go abroad and study. Yeah, I I learned Sanskrit uh, at the University of Toronto. They had language training courses for their graduate program. So as part of part of uh, when I came back to do my finish my BA, I knew that it was going to be South Asian studies or religion, and I knew that Sanskrit was. It just I knew that I would need it, you know, because the the things I was interested in learning about all these ideas are in Sanskrit. So I ended up that it was another ridiculously synchronistic story where um, uh, I just showed up at the class, walked by the room, <laughs> second week of classes, and just the spidey sense was going off. So I, I ducked into the class and it ended up being Sanskrit. And I didn't have a textbook. And the instructor said, here, you take this home for the weekend and you catch up. And then you, she, 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 <laughs> she bought my loyalty with her kindness. <laughs> So, you know, the, the, the language of the gods, the Devabhasha, you know, I was soon taken by how sophisticated and acoustic and ornate this ancient tongue was. And on this, at, at the same time, I was interested in mantra, which typically in South Asia or in Hindu South Asia is in Sanskrit. And I thought, okay, well, let me learn the grammar. It'll help me understand the text and it'll help me to pronounce these ancient uh, incantations correctly. So... The love of the language was one piece, but really what gripped me was the love of the story. When I came across the story of Rama in the Valmiki Ramayana, this ancient tale that that, that countless people have known over the, the centuries, the story of more people who have walked the earth have known the story of Rama than the story of Moses. That's how many people we're talking about. Gripping, gripping tale of court intrigue, of... Uh, uh, spiritual adventure, and I was confounded to understand why on earth he ends up giving up his throne on the day of his coronation to take exile as a pseudo-ascetic sage for, uh, I believe it was 14 years. I just couldn't make sense of why they celebrated this decision of his. I knew there was something important there, but I couldn't figure out what it was. So it was the the, 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 the gripping archetypal nature of the story and the story's power to yield insight about what it means to be human. That's what got me by my being. And the fact that I was interested in Indian ideas and Indian thought and practice, and I have Indian DNA, Indian DNA, yes, very Western upbringing in mind, but clearly if there is a soul, uh, my soul is Indian because I get this stuff instinctively in a way that people who've lived in India their whole lives don't. And so I deeply resonate with it. I'm similar to some of these people who they're, they're scholars uh, and aficionados of all things Indic and they're in um, Western or Caucasian bodies. I seem to be one of those, except I have the DNA for it. <laughs> but it was the story that gripped me. Uh, and learning Sanskrit afforded me the opportunity to enter the story world myself. And it also afforded the opportunity to enrich my practice life by, uh, by, by practicing uh, chanting and, and invocations in the Sanskrit language. And you did that for a year in India as well, right? Yes, I went away in India for a year and I studied Sanskrit uh, a semester. I take that back. 
after the master's and the master's three over three years, half time while I worked at the catering company. And then I took a year off and I worked again, processing grants for the engineering department at the university of Toronto. And then in 2011, I started a PhD at the university of Calgary in 2012. I did a semester living in India, studying in India and Pune where I got superb advanced Sanskrit training. And so what were you doing um, about a year ago? If you could take us to early March or April, well, early March of 2020, what was a typical day like for you? What were you doing? Yeah, it was in a really interesting space in that I have been coaching people and teaching people online since 2017. Strangely enough, uh, I just had this instinct that online was the way to go. And I followed that instinct. And so I was, I had the odd class uh, in person at the University of Toronto School of Continuing Studies. I had some online stuff, although I don't think I had any that semester. So I wasn't teaching online in that particular semester. I was teaching in person at Continuing Studies, doing scholarship and coaching people online. And that was more or less my life in a nutshell and podcasting, of course. So what happened when the pandemic hit? Did it shift things for you? And if so, what? It, it shifted things majorly, actually. It shifted them and it didn't. In some ways, it radically transformed my life. And in some ways, it brought into focus what I was already doing. So being a little bit ahead of the online curve, it really brought into focus why it was important to continue teaching online. And all of a sudden, this sort of side gig that I was a, a bit cheapish about with academics in terms of this alt-ac online teaching thing, all of a sudden, it became an asset because we had scholars who established scholars with tenure track jobs who needed to teach online now. <laughs> and guess who some of them came to in my field to say, well, how do you do this? And what, you know, what's Zoom? I've been on Zoom for years. What's Zoom and how does this work? And so when the, when the pandemic hit, um, my colleagues were ready for, more ready for, my established colleagues were more ready for podcasts and online education and stuff I was just a little bit ahead of the curve on. Um, in addition to that, <laughs> I ended up uh, discovering, it's so ridiculous, I make all of this online content, right? But I don't consume much online at all. I joined Twitter last year. I joined Facebook last month for the school. Um, and I don't, I don't take online courses. You know, I teach a bunch of courses. And so uh, one day I came across these online courses and I thought, wow, these are fascinating Hindu studies courses. They are being offered as part of uh, the online offerings at the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies. So I thought to myself, hey, wow, like, there's such a synergy that I feel between the people who listen to the, to the New Books and Hindu Studies podcast and uh, that I suspect anyhow, and, and the people who would come and take a course at, at the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies or the OCHS. And so randomly in July, maybe, may, no, not sorry, pardon me, in April, I messaged them, but a year ago, I messaged them and said, hey, um, I do this podcast for the New Books Network. It's got a decent listenership, probably, you know, 20, 25K downloads a month. Um, 
can we have someone on the podcast uh, from OCHS? You know, I really think the audience would value this and let's get the word out there. And they're like, sure. And so they send along Nick Sutton to be interviewed by me. I never met him before. I think I read a couple of his articles years before when I was an undergrad. I knew the name. I knew that he'd written something interesting on the Mahabharata that I quite liked. I remember that Mahabharata is an ancient Sanskrit epic tale. Um, and so I'm on this podcast with Nick Sutton, the director of the Continuing Studies Department, and we are both um, um, talking about how important online learning is in general, how important it is during the pandemic. We both accurately saw that it was just only going to pick up at the OCHS. And we started talking about how limited the stringently scholarly paradigm is when broaching texts as meaningful and as profoundly human as the Mahabharata or Hindu scriptures. And just based on that conversation, (laughs) when we were done, he was like, hey, do you want to come tutor courses for us? Why don't you teach in our in our <laughs> in our online courses? And I was like, sure, why not? And so from that day to this, I'm one of their um, their tutors for their online courses. So that's one little little stream. The the the, the but the online pieces have picked up, and it found a own online school. The podcast has really picked up. It's really brought into focus. Um, I've never been busier. I've never been busier or or have been so privileged in terms of exerting influence and promoting other people's stuff. And that's um, directly related to the pandemic um, um, accelerating, exasperating, irritating, uh, embellishing this trajectory that was already nascent in the online world. So that's how life moved forward. What sorts of things got stalled out because of the pandemic? Oh, it's very difficult because um, obviously face-to-face time wasn't an option. Um, obviously, teaching an in-person course, whether private here at the University of Toronto, wasn't an option. Obviously, conferences were done. I was supposed to be in Canberra at the World Sanskrit Conference, Canberra, Australia. It's every three years, I believe, three or two. There's another conference at Dubrovnik that's for Sanskrit narrative. So once every three years, once every two years, and I can't remember which is which. <laughs> but um, I'm supposed to be there in person uh, this past January. And so, of course, we were preparing all of last year to go. That was canceled. I was supposed to be in Dubrovnik for the first time. It happened that last year, 2020, is when both uh, conferences synced up and both were to take place in the same year. And neither of them... Um, uh, the Canberra one was postponed entirely, so it'll be a year from now. The Dubrovnik one was sort of up in the air for a while, and then they ended up doing a hybrid situation, and a few people came because it was risky. And and then basically we were given the opportunity to present online, which was, was great in terms of the conference going on, but there's no replacement whatsoever for an immersive conference experience or a face-to-face conversation. And despite how powerful online pedagogy or coaching can be, there really is no replacement for um, in-person human interaction. And that's all gone. So it's really transformed uh, how we work with our colleagues, uh, how we teach students. So there's definitely been those losses as part of the pandemic. And what about your own research and writing timelines? Have those been affected? Oh, without question. Uh, let's put it this way. Um, I have, uh, I'm pretty uh, pretty good at 
managing things and timelines. And so I had uh, two articles. Like one article was just had just come back from the journal with comments from the reviewers to be revised. Um, and the other article, uh, I was in conversation with with a collaborator at Ghent in Brussels, and we were sort of every week we were chipping away at a, at a collaborative project. Now both of those were stalled beyond belief. I've never ever had uh, like I may be a little atypical in that I'm pretty on top of things with publication and I publish uh, a great deal actually relatively speaking or so I'm told um, that was stalled to a year I didn't get those revisions in typically I would have gotten them back to them within a month maybe two tops I did not get back those revisions to the editor until last month and that collaborative paper Due to the pressures of the pandemic, that was left in the ether from about August, September of last year. And we just banged it off. And the only reason I banged it off is because we have um, other opportunities and other stuff flowing and it's stagnant. So it, it really did stall the publication um, um, production. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah. Um, so can you give us a general sense of where things are in Canada now as far as plans to reopen and your own sense of, you know, the next time you'll be getting on a plane to go uh, give a paper or go to yeah. archive? Um, yeah, it's it's um, and it's all relative. I mean, compared to most of the world, Canada's probably been done pretty well in terms of vaccinations. They've been relatively slow rolling them out the the more um the more immediate horizon is the fact that i live in toronto and toronto is the largest uh, city in canada home to uh, the pearson international airport with a vast subway public transportation um, 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 system and so toronto has been more difficult to control than most places that you'd expect with this kind of texture and and, and set up um, and my province of Ontario have I mean, we're well within the third wave at this point. Uh, they have issued a province-wide, and, there, and there's so many issues involved in terms of opening, closing certain regions. It's you know, one would think they would have just issued a province-wide closure a couple months ago, and this would be a very different situation probably. But who knows? None of us have crystal balls and humans are unpredictable on the best of days. But we have just been under ordered under lockdown again <laughs> a couple of days ago to last 30 days. Um, that's, you know, that's quite demoralizing and problematic, even for the best of us who know it's the right thing to do. Um, on the other hand, the really odd part, aside from my social life and my sense of personal freedom, the odd part is um, my actual work doesn't change. It's me and Zoom and and my computer and teaching and writing and it's it's um, if one can manage one's emotions and productivity, uh, you know, and workflow, it's actually a good time for producing stuff online when you're kind of head down at home. But it's pretty heavy in the city because people are just so fatigued and they're so tired and they're so like. The back and forth and the up and down, I think it's more demoralizing than just everybody closed down for a month or two and then we reopen, if that makes sense. It does. So what lockdown number is this? Is this like number four? Or? 
Oh, I, you know what? I've lost track of that because I'm so in my world. I organize online events. I write stuff. I teach stuff. And so I'm, I've just part of my coping strategy is just not focusing on it. But this is easily the third one we've had. I'm pretty sure it's the third, if not the fourth that, that Toronto has had. So it sounds like your strategy to get through this is to create a sustainable lifestyle for the duration and not keep contracting and expanding it, but to just sort of hunker down, keep going. And then when there really is a, a great deal of confidence in safety of travel and whatnot, then you'll start expanding your day-to-day life and your uh, the territory that you traverse in a general day. Yeah, I think that's a good way of, of, I think that's a good, that's a solid assessment. What I would liken it to is this. Let's just say you're in a major city, right? And you're on a main street. It's Sunday morning at 7 a.m. Let's just say it's a time of year, like in the summer where it's pretty bright at 7 a.m. But, you know, there are no cars. Okay. And the light's red. You look both ways. You can't see a car. Maybe you could see a car like, you know, three quarters of a mile away. Maybe, right? Do you wait for the signal to tell you, or do you use your senses? I'm sort of wired to, uh, you know, stop if it's green if I see danger, and go when it's red if I see no danger. That's just how I'm wired. So, irrespective of what the bureaucratic bodies and the political bodies and the the discourse and the blah 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 are doing, it's abundantly clear to me that we are at war. This is a wartime, and whether or not the premier or the president or the governor or the whomever issues whatever, it doesn't change the fact that we're at war. And one thing I've learned in this life is how to weather a storm. And I realize there's a storm. It doesn't matter what what move what chess pieces move on the board today or tomorrow. We are in the middle of a battle, a war, a storm. And I understand that it'll be abundantly clear when the ice really starts to melt. But until then, find a strategy to weather the storm and find a strategy to stay in a good space while doing so, whether it's daily music, mindfulness, cutting out the noise and the toxicity. And that's what it's been. It's been, I've been underground weathering a storm, doing my utmost best to exercise self-care and good practices day in and day out so I can stay in a positive, productive space and then doing what I can. But I know that as soon as it's clear to me that ice is melting, I'll be going to conferences. I'll be seeing people in person. But until then, this strategy very much is um, get by because it doesn't matter what the policies are. It doesn't matter what the tweets are. None of that matters. People are dying. We're in the middle of... Um, we're in the middle of a crisis. It's a highly contained crisis for most of us. But I think that we are wise to remember that we're at war. You talked about earlier on when you were working at the catering place that you realized you were in the middle of a spiritual yearning. And you found yourself one day at a yoga studio and a gentleman was giving a Dharma talk and you found yourself going again and again, seeking out his mentorship and wisdom. Um, Has he moved online with his Dharma talks? How are you maintaining the spiritual practice that you undertook? and Where are you finding those resources now? Uh, So when I met my teacher, um, this was in 2004, 
And he was already in his late 60s, I believe, that time. I studied very closely with him for a number of years, and I had the good fortune of having lineal training, sort of uh, wisdom traditions training, um, learning a bunch. Part of the reason why I did the, the master's halftime over three years was there was tons that I was learning that was beyond the academy, and then I was also working in addition to that. Um, he has now passed on in 2017. And so many of the strategies that I use and the teachings that I draw on obviously are from what he's gifted me with. I have a daily practice that's been there for uh, probably close to 20 years at this point. Um, uh, the wisdom with which he's gifted me and, and, and the ability, not just the fish, the ability to fish, uh, the ability to think, the ability to intuit, the ability to sort. Um, that's with me now. And that's that spiritual peace, that grappling with and coming to terms with life's mysteries. That's part of my being. And that's really, uh, uh, that's a central piece to the school I founded, which dovetails scholarly and spiritual perspectives. And I feel that's quite needed. Um, not necessarily the academy, obviously, uh, but I think there is a, there are a number of people who were like me, uh, when I started on this path, who are really yearning for both, both intellectual and and, and spiritual nourishment. Um, does that answer your question? It does. Um, you've mentioned the school that you founded, and you've also mentioned how the Western tradition of teaching, particularly at the higher ed level, leaves so many gaps. And for, particularly for something like a spiritual text, it kind of goes all around the outside of it, but it misses a lot of the core components of why spiritual texts and stories are created and uh, sustained over time. So it sounds like your school has in some part been set up to address that. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, sure. So rather than learn about Indian wisdom traditions, oh, by the way, um, the school is called the School of Indian Wisdom, so that'll give you some context, but rather than learn about um, Indian wisdom traditions, the school's mandate of pedagogy is to learn from them, right? Is to, um, yes, of course, start off with this critical thinking piece, start off with this history of religions piece, start off understanding where these practices come from, understanding, understanding all that we're so well trained in understanding uh, through the academic lens. That's important. That's just the beginning. Because studying sheet music and studying um, music history will perhaps satisfy some intellectual curiosities. They'll, they'll, they will um, not facilitate in the making or the experience of music. And these are musical instruments. These texts are musical instruments. They're sheet music. They're meant to be intoned. They're meant to be lived. And so that's where the school fills in that gap. So for studying this group of goddesses called the Mahavijas. Okay, we'll study the history and the sociology and, and some of, if we have um, references to temples and all that, but then what are the practices? What are the, the diagrams? What are the, the mantras associated? What do they mean? What do they symbolize? What do they have to do with the human experience? What is this all about? What is the story of this goddess doing this outrageous thing? What does it mean? What does it have to do with embodied experience in this world how can it facilitate anyone in their personal or spiritual journey right and so 
it's that hybrid space of 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 uh, you know I'm sure to you to 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 strain the analogy, one can find an academy that teaches the history of music and, and music theory, or one can find people to jam with, and the people who jam and may be great musicians may not consciously know music theory or have any clue about music history, and the music historians may not may be tone deaf. But how cool is it to find an academy that can teach about the history of a tradition, right? And also um, jam, also share a little bit of the musicality. I think that's the niche. And I'm discovering that because of the people that are coming. And they're, they're let me put it this way. Someone said to me the other day, you know, does the Oxford Center mind that you're starting up this this online school? I said, you don't seem to understand that <laughs> the reason why the school is needed is because the Oxford Center does what they do well. They're not they are not reductionists in that there is room for practice and there is room for talking about practice, but they're going to be teaching it from, um, from an intellectual paradigm versus here are teachings from within a tradition, right? And that distinction is crucial. So I think there's something for everyone, for people that want that outsider perspective. There's, there, that exists for people that want practice. Certainly there's no shortage of teachers who can share practices and all that. Um, but I'm finding more and more there is this subsection of society who really, they want their critical thinking history of religions piece. And they also want to be moved by the power of music. The School of Indian Wisdom is entirely online? It's entirely online. It was conceived and delivered during the pandemic so yeah it's entirely online and i expect it'll be so forever i mean that's not to preclude the possibility of in-person conferences or retreats but it's entirely online instruction so is it safe to assume your students are all over the place it is safe to assume that indeed uh, students throughout uh, the states and canada throughout the uk um students in other parts of Europe, um, students in Australia, uh, you name it, students in Singapore, students, um, a number of nations. <laughs> we have a bit of a League of Nations going on. Dubai, right. So are the courses recorded? Um, are people getting up in the middle of the night? How is this yeah. working? That's a good question. So for me, I really think it's important um, to always have the opportunity to have synchronous experience as opposed to just asynchronous. I record the modules each week that contain core content that they quite enjoy. Um, and from what I've gathered and what from they've communicated, they, they often will go back over and over and, and re-experience a story or, or re-examine the wisdom being shared in that teaching. So that's quite useful. And that's quite potent. But for me, an important part of embodied learning or embodied online learning is having a shared experience that's synchronous, that's happening in the same time, having a conversation, having the ability to ask a question, having the ability to see someone's face, right? And so that that will always be a cornerstone of the, the pedagogy of the school because it's a cornerstone of how I've always taught online. There has to be a synchronous component. And some courses are all synchronous. But in this case, due to the nature of the material and due to the dispersion of the students, 
uh, it's fine to have most of the content pre-recorded as long as there's a weekly face-to-face call. And so how do you manage those weekly face-to-face calls? Do you have like three times a day that you offer them in hopes that they'll somehow work for the very disparate time zones? Or how do, how do you have face-to-face with someone who's, you know, 20 hours ahead of you? Yeah. And so when I first started uh, at the OCHS in July 2020, the semester started in July, um, it, it, it was kind of odd to me that there was no synchronous dimension to those courses just because of my own personal experiences. I'm sure there are other platforms and students are perfectly happy with that. But I said, okay, well, I'm going to offer a, a live call that's voluntary. It's not essential for the course. I mean, one will do just fine with the course. If someone wants some enrichment or some face-to-face time um, or the ability to ask questions live, then I'll offer these this one Zoom call a week. And then I thought, okay, well, when will it be? So I sent out a survey, um, survey monkey survey, and asked folks, for those of you interested, you know, what time would you pick? And I did this for a couple of semesters in a row, three semesters in a row, in fact. Now it's clear to me which time works fairly well for most people who come to these courses. So it's actually a much narrower time band than you think. Typically, if something is held mid-ish afternoon in the eastern zone, anyone on the North American continent can come, and most in Europe can come. And strangely enough, depending on the time, it's like early morning in Australia the next morning, like seven, eight o'clock in the morning. So that's the sweet spot I find for my current student demographic. Now, obviously, if they're in different countries, that's going to change. Right. But the, it works fairly well. Rarely is there a student who wants to attend a live session who can't make it. There is another group of students I have in Singapore. Uh, and they're all 12 hours off of me. So I'll, I have a live class with them that's 7 a.m. my time or 8 a.m. my time. Because then, you know, it's their evening. And I make that work because there's a bunch of them there. But by and large, the, 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 the sweet spot sort of mid-afternoon Eastern time. To, to catch everyone that seems to be interested in these courses. Also, there's a number of factors because it's not just someone's time zone. It's also the hours that they keep. Some people are night owls. So strangely enough, a certain time in one might think, oh, well, 5 p.m. Uh, Eastern is way too late for someone in the UK. It's 10 p.m. They may prefer that time. They may be a student or maybe that's when they wake up or who knows. And so there's a lot of variables but surprisingly, um, people can meet on these calls just fine, is my experience. Do you find that they're able to form community with each other? Without question. That's one of the motivations. The motivation for these calls is pedagogical. It's also um, social in that it, it affords the opportunity for them to connect with other human beings interested in the same thing. And that's a cornerstone of life. That's a cornerstone, in my view, of education, or it should be. And it's abundantly clear to me that that's never been more needed given everybody being under lockdown. So there are times when students will come on the call, and I know that they're interested, the gears are churning but they don't really feel like speaking or they don't have a question. They really just want to be with their, their peeps. They just want to connect and be with a, a room full of people rather than, you know, be by themselves with Netflix type thing. 
Are your students able to share with you what their greatest needs are? And without giving away privacy, can you tell us what are some of the things that you see that your students are really dealing with right now during the pandemic? You've told us about being the the instructor and and, um, where you've come to in life, but for them, where are they? They're really struggling the way many of us are, Um, particularly those who don't have so online a career to begin with as I did. Two things, they're isolated. They want human interaction. Uh, Secondly, they're unmoored. They want meaning if they're not able to work or if work's dried up, right? So meaning, structure, something to do, taking a class affords an opportunity. Towards both. It affords the structure and the meaning of having goals and making progress. And it affords the opportunity to connect with like-minded students, whether it's through an online chat form, which I also do, or live calls. Those two things are really, really needed right now. Um, in addition to that, for my particular um, audience, uh, they're looking for spiritual tools uh, in general. But they're also looking for how to make sense of all that's going on, how to make meaning of what we're made to endure. The world is being turned upon its head. We are part of a global car accident in slow motion. And it's making sense of that is no small feat. What do you hope listeners will take away today? Pardon me, could you ask that again? Yes, what do you hope listeners will take away from this conversation, this podcast today? I hope they'll take away this notion that any calamity or roadblock um, or difficult situation can be alchemized, can be leveraged, can be um, an instrument of, of something greater and more balanced and more well. And I hope that they will look to their lives and understand however painful, however disorienting, I in no way, shape or form mean to make light of this calamity and the carnage that's left in its wake. But if nothing else, if they can see that this train wreck is also an opportunity. That is what I'd like to take away. It's an opportunity for my students to learn, for me to teach, for example. It's an opportunity to slow down. It's an opportunity to fix what's broken in the home, relationships, systems, what have you. Just to take away this powerful notion that these tumultuous times is an a massive opportunity for um, a new way of being in a new normal. That That is essentially what I hope they would take away. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Dr. Raj Balkaran, and giving us your pandemic perspective. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. Please join us again. <laughs>